There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 388. Skydart and I are in a supposedly haunted uh, bed and breakfast type place as we make our way across Canada. Uh, did Comic-Con, went and performed just for last in Montreal, and then said, let's take a few days off. I know, me! Uh, rented a car, drove through Ottawa, and uh, now we're in uh, Kingston, which is a phenomenal town, if you've never been through. Uh, I recommend Kingston, Ontario. I really, We like it a lot. Food's good, architecture is amazing, people are super nice. Uh, it's a good town. It's got history. History's good, isn't it? It is. Do I like to ask questions and answer them? Yes, I do. Uh, also, I want to mention that uh, Geek Week is coming up August 4th through 10th, which is uh, essentially a themed week that YouTube has put together that uh, we as Nerdist Channel producing with a bunch of uh, incredible partners like Stan Lee and Machinima and Freddie, Freddie W and Felicia Day. And so go to our, uh, our channel on YouTube, youtube.com slash Nerdist, click subscribe, uh, and then you'll see a bunch of uh, themed programming around the week of, of August 4th. So that's that. And I want to thank Shutterstock.com for uh, sponsoring this episode podcast. Shutterstock is, uh, per- you're going to find the perfect video for, for whatever creative project you're working on next. It's a uh, website, advertising, multimedia presentation, any kind of film project. Over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, 3D motion graphics um, in pretty much any kind of digital format that you would possibly need. They're going to give you the asset you need to bring whatever your creative project is to the next level so you don't have to go out and shoot the thing yourself. What if you're like, eh, I need a duck standing on a car? Well, good luck engineering that. Uh, but with Shutterstock, you probably have a good chance of finding it. So use Shutterstock. They have amazing customer service. If you're having a tough time, 24-hour support all throughout the week. Uh, and they've got flexible pricing, too. So... Uh, no credit card needed. Start an account. Begin using Shutterstock to help imagine your next project uh, and what it could be like. Uh, save video selections you find to your clip box. Then, once you decide to purchase, then you're going to need a credit card. Uh, but use the offer code NERDIST7 and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com. Uh, 30% off new accounts. Use NERDIST7. And good luck finding that duck on a car. Um, this episode is George R.R. R. Martin. I have to do it the Paul and Storm pirate way. Actually, if I were really being thorough, I would say George R. R. Martin, which I think we probably did one time in an hour-long marathon version of The Captain's Wife Lament, which is probably on YouTube somewhere with Paul and Storm, Will, and I. But uh, George did uh, an amazing thing at uh, Woodstock this year at Comic-Con where he, he came on stage and destroyed Paul and Storm's guitars. Uh, and I think Veronica Belmont took video of it and put it up on YouTube, but... 
George uh, George was kind enough to sit down with us in his hotel room. We went to the uh, Palace du Georges. Is that a language? Probably not. And uh, here you go, the Nerds Podcast number three eighty eight with the genius George R R Martin. Didn't do the pirate voice in the last one. You're welcome. I have to say George. I don't think, George. I, don't think I do have to say George. Good George. George? Good George. Thanks, Claire. You're a haunted bird and breakfast. Now entering Nerdist.com. Here. We're going to talk just about, you know, chicks and stuff. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll get you in trouble. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Jonah, that's way worse. What? No. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I don't know. What are they? Hey, you stop it. You? <laughs> You're listening to the Mad Men Comedy Hour. <laughs> George R. R. Martin, we're in your hotel room. We've invaded your hotel room. Which I was noticing... You have a really nice view, and there's no evidence out of this side of the building that there's any type of convention of any sort. No, no, they've, they've given me the, uh, the San Diego view. You have, you have the San Diego view, so out this is like, oh, you're on a nice vacation, and then the window on the other side of the building is, I have to walk through that? Uh, yes, well, no, I, I have to take a golf cart through that, I think, and, uh, you know. With a, with with a cow catcher on the front? Saying, you know, clear the way, clear the way. <laughs> <laughs> do people I mean this experience for you must be I mean you you've you've been a long time convention goer you've been going to conventions for for a long I mean I've been I've been going to uh, conventions since there were conventions uh, especially comic book conventions 1964 the first comic book convention ever held New York City run by Len Wein uh-huh he was in high school I was in high school and living in Bayonne New Jersey he ran the first comic book convention in his sleazy hotel in Greenwich Village, Saturday only, one day. <laughs> it had a room about the size of my hotel room he had rented, and there were about 30 people there. So it's growing in some <laughs> Steve Ditko showed up, wow. and uh, he would, that when the other guest, the other big guest was Fabulous Flo Steinberg. I don't know if any of you were old enough to remember Fabulous <laughs> really? Flo. She was actually a secretary at uh, Marvel at the time, but, uh, you know, Stan Lee always talked about her as fabulous flow. Yeah, so she was a celebrity. She was a celebrity, so she came, and Steve Ditko came. I don't think he's ever come to a convention since. Uh, we, must have, <laughs> we must have scared him, these uh, 30 high school kids who were there to welcome him. But <laughs> Len told me that, uh, that I was the first person to sign up for it. So, in that sense, I am the first comic fan. Wow, I am zero. number one. My band yeah, said number zero. one because I was the first one to sign up. So, Weirdly all enough. this comes from me. <laughs> we are your offspring. That's right. Weirdly enough, though, the same amount of comic books at that first comic book convention than there are now. Hey! <laughs> good. It's the same amount of people here for comic books. For yeah. comic books. And it really, it, really, it really has become pop culture cons, which... It has, yes. Which some people, you know, I hear sometimes like, oh man, it's not just about comics. I go, yeah, but, you know, because it's more infused into pop culture, we get a Game of Thrones, or we get a Joss Whedon Avengers movie, or we get, you know, like, it's, it, it's, I think it's nice, actually. Do you wish it were like the old days? Not, not really. I, I mean, um, 
there's a complicated issue here, um, the, the, the general and the personal. Um, of course, I'm a science fiction guy, too. Uh, you know, besides, I started as a comic fan, but I've written science fiction and fantasy and novels and screenplays and all that for many years. And I went to my first world science fiction convention in 1971. So the comic conventions first, which was starting with Lens in 64, and then in 71 I went to the world science fiction convention in Boston, and I've been going to those ever since. And Worldcon, as it's generally called, it moves to a different city every year. And it was the center of the science fiction fantasy universe. It was the biggest convention in the world. Um, it was the gathering of all the tribes, uh, kind <laughs> of, uh, the, not the book readers. Books were always central to it, but you had television, film, and you had some comic book guys, and you had uh, gaming, although in those days there were no video games and all that. You had all of that would come together, costumers, um, etc., filk singers um, at Worldcon. And it, it grew, it was like 2,000 when I started going, and it grew to like 3,000 and 4,000 and 5,000. In, in, and then a few comic book conventions started, and as I said, there were like 30 people at the first one. They were pretty small, and this one started in San Diego. But up to about the mid-'80s, Worldcon was still the, uh, the big convention. And in 1984, uh, that was really the turning point. The 1984 Worldcon in Los Angeles drew 8,000 people. And that panicked the people running Worldcon, saying, oh, it's getting too big. And these people are coming in, and they don't read the books. You know, they're, they're coming in, and they're not, uh, oh, they're not book-reading uh, people. Yeah, and we don't want to, so let's stop advertising so much, and let's <laughs> stop doing that. And, and San Diego Comic-Con, which was going at the time, was actually smaller. I mean, when World Thousand was 8,000, it was only like four or 5,000. But at that point, Worldcon pulled back and said, "We don't want to, we don't want to do that anymore." And San Diego stepped to the breach and said, oh, "Okay, wow. we'll do it. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> welcome here. You know, you don't have to read the books. You can be anything. You don't have to be a comic book fan." And and since then, of course, you see the results. I mean, San Diego is a hundred and fifty thousand people, and uh, Worldcon is still stuck at about uh, three thousand, four thousand, and. Uh, uh, has become, I, I don't know, it's still the center for the people who read novels and, and uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. It's still where the Hugo Awards are given out, but it's become less and less relevant and more and more, not only San Diego, but Dragon Con, the New York City Comic Con, C2E2 yeah, in Chicago. Chicago. All of these are gigantic shows um, compared to uh, the, the World Con. And there's part of me that regrets it. It's uh, the old, uh, the old fart part of me that still likes the idea of uh, of Worldcon being the center. You know, Worldcon used to be, uh, you know, in 1977 uh, there were uh, 76 actually. There was a, a Star Wars a year before Star Wars came out. They had a display. George Lucas had a display at uh, the oh, Kansas wow. City Worldcon where Mark Hamill was there in a room full of props and people were coming in and saying, what the hell is this? Oh, a new movie coming out next year. You'll oh like it. And, we'll uh, see. Yeah, yeah. Good luck we'll with that. <laughs> that looks dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Was that a sword made out of light? That's stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Christopher Reeve showed up to accept his Hugo uh, uh, for, uh, for Superman when it was the best dramatic presentation. It used to be something that you know the the world of media and film and all that really cared about. Now they now they don't. You know, by and large, it's it's all turned at the San Diego. And San Diego's done a great job for it. I mean, this is an incredible convention. The size of it is daunting. Um, yeah. I I can't imagine 
I mean, I have a great time here, but uh, without trying to sound too ego maniacal, it's because I'm a I'm a VIP. Yeah, I, I get golf courts to take me where I am. I go into the secret entrances that uh, isn't available to the fans. Uh, where are these? <laughs> Not for you. Not no. for you. <laughs> it's actually a pneumatic tube system from yeah. the hotel room, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and then he just appears in Hall H. That's what that door is. <laughs> and then back. Yeah. I can't imagine what this experience is like for, you know, equivalent to the 13-year-old kid I was in, in 1964 when I went to Lens Convention. Right. Someone who just pony-ups his money and comes to the convention, and then you're standing in lines for hours and hours, and maybe you don't get into any of the panels you actually want to see, and you can't... I mean, I don't know. They do a great job. People seem to have fun, but boy, I, I would not I would not like to go to this convention as a fan, but I love coming here as a, as a pro and, and uh, a guest and doing that kind of thing it's it's exciting it's exhilarating what was that first comic-con in 1964 what was it was it basically just would you as a uh like obviously artist but did people just bring like a box of comics to trade i mean was it was it trading or were you buying stuff or was it yeah, well it was all in one room so there was no dealer's room or parties right it was all like in a room this size and there were a few people who brought boxes of old comic books cardboard boxes and they were trading back and forth and selling them you know, it was, and we were shocked because, you know, those 10 cent comic books, people were selling them for like a quarter. What? They were like profiteering. <laughs> they, were, they were getting two and a half, and, you know, people were saying, Maybe 45 cents. Wait a minute, the 10 cent comic book, and it's used. It should be like cheaper oh. now. There you raise the price on it. <laughs> did you, did you ever, did you foresee? I remember like a couple years later, uh, a, a copy of Action Number One at, at like the third Comic Con in New York, which I also went to. A copy of Action Number One sold for a hundred dollars. It made all the news stations. What a rip! These people paid a hundred dollars for a comic book. What the hell is wrong with these people? Did you? Did you? Okay, so when that started to happen, you must have. But did you foresee that kind of like aftermarket, secondhand, vintage collectors thing? Did you? Did you think that would happen, or were you just a surprise? Yeah, I, I did. I did think it would happen. Actually, by by the time I saw that happening, I got started smart. So I was, you know. When, like, X-Men number one came out and Avengers number one came out, I bought multiple copies, so, uh, you know. And then, unfortunately, I sold those multiple copies, you know, back in the kind of late 70s when I I had a a year where I needed some money. So I still got pretty good, you know. I bought them for 12 cents and I sold them for $100 each or something like that. But now, of course, they're... $10,000 $10,000 each or whatever the hell they are. You can buy them back. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably track those down and yeah. buy them back. <laughs> so then... But I did see, I did see, uh, you know, you could you could already see by the 65, 66, 67 that this was happening and it was going to continue to happen. You know, I had no idea where the roof was, though, yeah. and I, I still don't know how we hit the roof. Are these things going to continue to appreciate forever? I don't know. I don't know. I can't imagine... Have to take over all of San Diego. Yeah. They're running out of space. They're really they're running out of space. They're running out of space in hotel rooms. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many people that this small little peninsula can hold. Yeah. So it couldn't be that much more. Weren't they trying to get money to like expand the convention center? They're they're doing that. Yeah. Because people are trying to lure this away. Las Vegas wants it to take it over. Uh, Los Angeles wants to take yeah. it over. So. Yeah. They they got to keep uh, bidding for it, but I actually can't. I've I've been to conventions in you know Los Angeles, Anaheim, which is the big you know convention. Anaheim, it, you're in Anaheim. 
<laughs> you know, the convention center is huge, but you walk out and you're in Anaheim. You're in Anaheim. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's the thing. That's what I like about it being in San Diego. It's still like it's still a pretty cool city. It is, you know, yes. for being in a Southern California. And you city. got the gas lamp district here, which is much cooler than Anaheim. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, you got downtown Disney guys. Main means come on. Like like San Diego Comic Con is basically it's like it's Los Angeles' corporate retreat. It's like everyone that works in the industry. It's like it's like this. We're gonna take a trip. Everyone's let's all go down. Yeah, and do trust falls. I think Vegas would be a huge mistake. I think Vegas. Would, yeah. First of all, the, the number- best mistake you mean? <laughs> no. no, 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 no. It's too much. It's too. It's too. It'd be too much. It'd be, it's sensory overload and the number of. Costume-related heat stroke deaths that would occur yeah. in Las Vegas. <laughs> it's bad enough. Yeah, I just, I just don't. Yeah, see that would that. be pretty bad. Yeah. yeah, it just feels, it just feels kind of gross. Where's the, uh, what's the, what's the best city you've been to a convention? And what do you, what do you, what do you like? Where do you like to go? Well, um, that's a complicated question. It, it depends on what what you're considering. I mean. Topography. Um, a lot of conventions, you know, you never leave the hotel or the convention center, you know, so there may be a great city around, but you never see it. Right. You're, you're doing panels and discussions and, and so forth. Um, sometimes you get a badly run convention, like the, the World Science Fiction Convention moves to a different city every year, so you, you see a lot of cities. Sure. And there there are, they have different characteristics. I mean, they, they, it has been in Anaheim a few years, that's why I know Anaheim, the big Anaheim Convention Center and things next to it, and that's a wonderful physical layout. So when you're actually at the convention, you know, the hotels are right next to the convention, it's easy to walk from one to the other, and for the parties at night, they get this hotel with a big open atrium, you know, and that's really pleasant, all the parties sort of merge into one party, and you're drifting around the pool, and, and you know, it's very nice, but... Then when you want to go out to eat, you're in Anaheim, and, and <laughs> <laughs> again, uh, yeah, it's it's terrible. On you know, on the other hand, like uh, a couple decades ago, they had a Worldcon in New Orleans, and it was one of the worst run Worldcons ever. They just completely screwed up everything, and people couldn't find their panels and all that. But nobody cared because they were in New Orleans. <laughs> That's right. They would go out, and then the French Quarter was right there. So you go into the French Quarter, and the food was fabulous, and the drink was fabulous, and so forth. The next year, Worldcon's in London. London is very cool. Oh, you know, wow. uh, Glasgow is cool. Um, so it's know, all over the world. Then. It, it, it goes all over the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was in Japan yeah, but, yeah. Japan a few years ago. Oh, and nice. uh, Finland is bidding for... Uh, Helsinki is bidding for... Um, the three years in the future. Oh, wow. The cities bid for the right like to hold the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, how many panels are you doing while you're here? Just two. Oh, that's not bad. No. I'm doing the Game of Thrones panel, of course, in Hall H, which will be huge. And then uh, I have a comic book that uh, just debuted, uh, uh, Avatar's adaption of my uh, my novella, The Skin Trade. So cool. that's making its debut here, and we're doing a panel on, on Sunday. So that'll be a small little panel. So Yeah, Skin Trade. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. It's actually about comic books. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think in a situation like that, because of how big Game of Thrones is, there's going to be like people asking questions? Like it's like it's Yeah, yeah does it get in the way? Yeah. You... They may. I'll find out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I've seen uh, panels before where it's just like, you know, they're there for a show, but like one person is from some other bigger entity. Then it's sort of up to the moderator to be like, hey guys, this is about skin trade, no Game of Thrones questions. That's in the Game of Thrones panel, you know, like yeah, go, yeah. go ask those questions then. But sometimes when people are like, this is my one chance, I gotta, I gotta do it. 
Yeah, and, and that's in a you know, relatively small room that'll house a couple hundred people. Uh, the Game of Thrones panel is in Hall H, there'll be 7,000 people there, and uh, you know, <laughs> people line up, they start lining up before the panel begins to ask their questions. So, uh, well, actually, there was an accident, right? Because everyone's trying to line up for Hall H. Everyone was like trying to squeeze into this area, and a girl was like outside on the street because she couldn't yes. get the line and she got hit, right? Yep. It's, it's, they should really handle that. I think they did. I oh. think everything's. I think they organized it a lot better this year. So I think it's all gonna. I think it's all gonna be one and run. People do camp out. People camp out on the street right outside the Bayfront, like all, all night long. But I think that sounds. I, mean, fun. I don't want to criticize. I think this, the people who run this convention do an incredible job. I mean, compared to something like Worldcon, this thing, you know, runs magnificently. But because it just because it has become so popular, they they have some insurmountable problems. They have hundred fifty thousand people, you know. Signing up for this convention, and the biggest hall sits seven thousand, and and you know so people who want to come to the big panels, that's why the hundred fifty thousand people are here, right? So they can see these stars and all that, and yet they can't. They pay their tickets, they can't actually right. get in. You know, one hundred and forty three thousand people. There's can't still one hundred and forty three thousand people. <laughs> I can alleviate the problem. Have a panel at Petco. The Petco panel at Petco Park. You can sit 75,000 in there. It'll happen someday. Every, yeah, that's every, an idea. Yeah. Every, answer, right every answer sounds like the Lou Gehrig speech. Yeah. Today, <laughs> today, 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 today. I'd like to know. Or the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess we don't really have time to ask questions. We're just screaming. panels. They can't hear ourselves. <laughs> ah! yeah. uh, I wanted to ask you about Superworld, because I played... Uh, I, I was a big D&D guy since there was D&D. Wow. Wow. And I never... I, I remember there were a couple other iterations of our... Like, when D&D sort of popped up, then there was, like, Boot Hill, and then there was, like, a, there was like a, a, a 007 kind of, a, like, a spy version. But Superworld I never played, but it sounded awesome. It was we we had a lot of fun with it. It led to my wild card series. Uh, yeah, you know, it probably cost me at least two novels because I played it obsessively <laughs> and for for like two years. And uh, you know, instead of writing, I'd be inventing because I was a game master, inventing more villains and plots and things like that. And we were playing like three times a week, and we were all my little group was all young then, so we would we would play till like four in the morning, and then we would spend the next two hours doing a post-mortem of the game we had just finished playing. <laughs> An after show, if you will. Yes. yes, and then it would be like dawn, and we would drive back to our houses and sleep the next day. Well, a lot of writers, we didn't have to work okay, for a living. <laughs> so do you, you like being game master versus being a, play, playing a character in the game? I like both of them, but yeah, I, I, did, I did like being a game master of that one. That was, uh, that was pretty cool. What was your favorite character? Uh, well, you know, I was creating the villains, so the, some of the characters in that game yeah, went on to become Super World characters, like Vic Milan's Captain Trips and Walter John Williams' Modular Man, and uh, so forth. Uh, they they made the transition well. <laughs> so if, I was reading about the game, and so from what I understand, the mechanics you basically it was similar to D and D, but you basically would get like just slight modifications of superpowers, but it wasn't as specific as like. It would say like, "Oh, you get a radiation blast." Like you would get a radiation blast modification, but it would say, "And it comes through your laser eyes." Like it, it wasn't. No, 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 no. You're, I don't know where you got that. That's wrong. The internet. That's why it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a point best system. You had a you know you had a base of uh, how many points you got, and you used them to buy powers. Uh, you know, 
super speed or flight or whatever it was, and uh, there were levels and things like that. But then you could get more points by taking on disadvantages. Um, and um, so, you know, we, 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 at first, when we created the characters, when we started playing it, we didn't know what we were doing, so we just, you know, created characters. People, you know, like, would create a superhero who had, like, seven different powers, you know, he could fly, and he could, he had laser vision, and he had some super strength and all that stuff, but he, he didn't have, he, he didn't have, well, no, but because they didn't. You're spending your points. You only got uh, like one or two levels of each of these, so he could do like seven different things, but he couldn't do any of them really well. <laughs> and then you Jack would, of all trades. Later on, we figured out okay, the, this guy can throw lightning bolts. He can throw really big lightning bolts that do like forty d six damage. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what. But then you needed defenses. You had to have a force field or impenetrable armor, and there were levels of well, my armor is proof against kinetic damage, but it's not proof against radiation damage. Then you were going vulnerable to guys who had radioactive powers or electrical powers. So you had a way where you're going to put your points. But you could always get more points, as I said, by taking disadvantages. So we used to say that, you know, if if someone who looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Superman showed up and as a villain, nobody was worried about him. But, you know, if like a thalidomide-based dwarf, <laughs> everybody ran in terror because they knew he would have really awesome powers. Oh, <laughs> shit, he's got a flipper on him. <laughs> He can vaporize you instantly. <laughs> it's the Linamite. Run. <laughs> and then what I think was kind of interesting was that it sounds like you guys were sort of crafting the game mechanics as you were playing at the same time. Yeah, in a sense we were, yeah. But our group, I mean, it was Melinda Snodgrass was in it, Vic Milan, Walter John Williams, um, you know, John Miller. A lot of the people went on to write for, for Wild Cards and... and uh, they're all writers, and they're all very imaginative, so it, it really was role-playing, you know, it was not, we, we went through entire nights where nobody rolled the dice, it was all just playing our characters, it was like improv theater, and it could be very funny or very uh, exciting, where we were just, you know, playing scenes out, and uh, some of those scenes actually later appeared in the Wild Card books, oh, wow. so uh, it was it was fun, and that's still my favorite kind of role-playing, is the role-playing part of the role-playing, not the rolling of the dice and and the, um, you know, the fighting things, kind of, but meeting with other characters and all that. Yeah. And actually just being like it's life, but they're actually but they're actually characters with these right. enhancements. So, do you think the, the wild card series just sort of being, I think, much more of a kind of realistic approach to superheroes, does it seem sort of antithetical to the rest of the 80s, which seemed like a very idealized period of time where everything's shiny and everything is perfect, but then, you know, you have a much more realistic portrayal of... Well, Wild Cards actually came along uh, at exactly the same time as... Uh um, Watchmen and uh, Dark Knight. Oh, 87, 86, 87. Yeah, yeah, it was all the all the same period. So it was something in the water there where I think a lot of people were independently saying, you know, we love these comic books, but some of the conventions of them are, are silly or, you know, let's do a more realistic uh, take on on them and see uh, how they went out. And it's, I've always found it fascinating to compare those those three approaches, uh, you know, particularly Watchmen and Wild Cards, because you know, both of those were multiple. I mean, Dark Knight was just one, just a new take on Batman. But uh, uh, Watchmen and Wild Cards were both kind of reinventing the superhero genre with a large cast of uh, 
uh, of characters and Alan Moore and and our writers on here took very different approaches to it, but they both arrived more, you know, more realistically. Did you? I mean, more basically threw out the superpowers. Um, you know, Doctor Manhattan is the only one of the Watchmen who has actual superpowers. The right. rest of them, rest of them are just like kind of Batman fighters. guys. Yeah, yeah they, <laughs> they they dress up in costumes and they they go out and fight crime and all that. We threw out. We took quite the opposite approach. We kept the superpowers, but we threw out. They dress up in costumes and fight crime, you know, because we decided that that was the realistic. You know, our fundamental question is: Well, what would happen if you got a superpower? You know, and ask yourself that. I mean, what if all of you were hit by a cosmic rays as you left this room, and you yes. all developed different superpowers? Would your first thought be to buy a spandex costume and fight crime? Uh, <laughs> well, here at Comic Con, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> well, you probably all have spandex costumes you, you, here. Anyway, you're you've, just just, you've just described the wet dream of everyone in there. They walk out, get hit by cosmic rays, and they're already in the spandex. Right. <laughs> like, oh my god, I was waiting for Toxic this. Toxic waste dump. I just got cancer. <laughs> it's not a superpower at all. It's bullshit. Fuck you, comic books. <laughs> but I, the approach of having a bunch of different uh, writers... And essentially, kind of weaving their stories together—is that was that exciting for you also as a fan to be like, oh, I can't wait to see what someone else writes and where they go with it and where I can build on that. That that kind of collaboration. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, I, it's always fun when I, I invite a new writer into Wild Cards and they bring in a new character and seeing them interact with the with the other older characters. But yeah, and seeing the characters spark off each other, the writers spark off each other. I mean, when it works well. It's it's uh, you know like a jam session between great great musicians or something where they're sitting around and they're jamming off each other's riffs and all that and that's great. Now, mind you, it doesn't always work well, and that's my job as editor. Is you know sometimes you get clashing egos or you get uh, the famous creative differences where people want to do different things and um, you know sometimes you have cases where. Uh, two writers like each other a lot and, and they have a great time making char- their characters hate each other and have a feud. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, you may get questions where two writers actually don't like each other very much. And, uh, you know, so I have to keep all this in, in line as editor. And, you know, what? sometimes you do get that great jam session. But sometimes, you know, the entire orchestra is, is playing... I can't get no satisfaction, except there's, there's one guy who wants to play Buffalo Gal, won't you come out tonight? And it doesn't necessarily gel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's that's why I get the big bucks as editor. <laughs> nice. Or do you actually kind of go in and sort of play personalities going, well, this, this guy likes to do this kind of thing, and this person likes to do this kind of thing, and so I'll, you know, sort of assign these different parts of the story to... Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's I mean, I'm aware of all the writer's strengths and weaknesses, of course, but we, I come up with a general overplot frequently in consultation with some of the other writers, yeah. and then I say, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be the overplot of this book. This is what is happening. Uh, you know, aliens have invaded, and uh, they land on Tuesday, and, you know, they look like giant squids, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what do we do? And then I take solicitations for however many stories. I've decided I'm going to take eight stories. we got, like, 40 members in the consortium, so I get more than eight proposals, and I go through and say who's in and who's out and which stories would work well together and which stories kind of duplicate each other and uh, all of that stuff, so... You're still basically the game master. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, I, I, you worked on Twilight Zone, the new Twilight Zones. 
the second of the four Twilight Zones, yes. The second Twilight Zone 2, <laughs> as we call it, yes. <laughs> Not the one with Rod Serling, that was Twilight Zone 1. That was Twilight Zone yes. 1, yeah, you did the, the 80s. We were the revival, the, the mid-80s network, CBS network yeah. version. Right. Then later that was succeeded by, after we were canceled, they wanted more episodes for syndication. So they moved it to Canada with uh, like a quarter of our budget, and they did... Twilight Zone 3, which is often bundled with Twilight Zone 2 in syndication packages. But that was a different show with a different staff. Joe Straczynski was on that staff. Oh! He was Twilight Zone 3. Um, And then they went away for 20 years, and they brought back a brief Twilight Zone 4 that lasted like four episodes a couple years ago. But one of the ones that I read that you wrote, uh, and I I actually remembered, which was um, was the Camelot one, Last Defender of Last Defender of Camelot. Yeah. Which, Lasney, short story. I, I did the adaptation. Yeah. Which, I, which I always loved because it basically sort of portrayed Merlin as a dick. <laughs> well, that was Roger. I mean, I, I did a, a faithful version as faithful as I could do of Roger's short story, which was brilliant, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Jonah is a huge Beauty and the Beast fan. Big fan of Beauty and the Beast. I watched, uh, I watched it all the time. But, but you're up. male. I know. <laughs> I found that out. He's like a beast. Not like school. You guys watch this Beauty and the Beast? What are you talking about? Never check. Then yeah. you're just trying to scrape your Beauty and the Beast yeah. sticker off. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. to put this on here. Uh, yeah, even like a, a buddy of my, of my, of my like we um, we made this um, like you know we had this web show and there was an episode. It was like a it was kind of like a serialized thing or not serialized but like a, you know it was like a, a retro diaries kind of right, like parody. Sure. And it was like a sexy radio show, and then like uh, one of the letters that we got was uh, basically just Beauty and the Beast, where it was like an under. Yeah, but yeah, I'm a big fan. Any good Ron Perlman stories? Everyone I talk to that's worked with Ron Perlman always has one good Ron Perlman story. Uh, I don't know if I have any stories, but working with Ron was great. He was a great actor. He was easy to work with. He was he was a delight. Yeah, he's completely different from Vincent, of course. His personality is much closer to Hellboy uh, <laughs> than uh, than Vincent. But he could do the Vincent voice and, and the makeup. You know, it took him four hours to get into that makeup, and then one hour at the end of the day to get out of it. So uh, that's uh, every working day add five hours to it. Um, but uh, he was amazing. How do you like uh, the the sort of the process of of adapting to a teleplay of like of, of trying to port something over to television? Well, I've I've seen it from both sides. I've been adapted. I've done ad- adaptations myself. Um, you know, their television has limitations that books don't have of of uh, budget and shooting time. You know, you you have to get it uh, produce a, an hour of film and within a certain uh, parameter, uh, seven days on Beauty and the Beast. Uh, longer on, you know, Game of Thrones, which has a considerably higher budget, and and uh, we only do ten episodes a year as yeah. opposed to twenty-two, so uh, that's uh, that's a slightly different parameter. But there's always there's always limitations, so you have to make choices, and sometimes they're hard choices. Um, that being said, I I also believe, uh, which maybe it's not a popular opinion in in Hollywood that. Uh, you owe a certain fidelity to the original source material and to the fans and readers of of that source material. And while you have to make some changes for um, practical reasons, Mm -hmm. you should never make extraneous changes um, just because you think you know better than the original writer, you know. 
Um, if, you, if you're adapting Spider-Man, you should stay as close to Stanley as possible. You shouldn't try to improve Spider-Man because you think you know better than Stanley, because you probably don't. And <laughs> if you look at all the Marvel movies, the ones that stay close closest to the original material are the strongest. The ones where people have gotten carried away and introduced a lot of extraneous changes are uh, weaker and sometimes disastrously weaker. Right. Um, and I think that's not just true of Marvel, that's true of any anything. Uh, you know, don't don't mess with the original material. There's lots of stories out there. If you want to make a different story, make a different story and make it your own story, make it an original, you know, you don't have to you don't have to trash something, uh, there's plenty of room for different variants on some of these basic ideas. But if you're gonna if you're gonna adapt something, um, you're adapting it because it already has a, a name and a reputation. It already has fans. You're getting the advantage of that. You're getting people who love this character or people who love this particular story um, are going to come and see your, your movie or your television show because they love the original. What they want to see is the original translated to a new medium. They don't want to see a new story that the screenwriter came up with uh, with just sharing a few basic elements of the of the old story. But I think that's why it's helpful that you know you're involved in your own adaptation. Yes. Because you know the idea of what the original, what the source material is, can be sort of subjective in some senses to fans who they'll read text on a page and then get this, you know, get this this image in their mind of what it is, and then you someone else translate and they're going, no, that's not what it is at all. Like the audience like comes in with a lot of preconceived notions. So it seems like you have a little bit more of an untainted. Uh, adaptation because it all came from your head. Yeah, I mean, I think my involvement is part of it, but uh, some of it also due to the fact that David Benioff and Dan Weiss, who are, who are the showrunners, who are doing most of the, the scripts and all that, uh, love my books and they the original material, and although they've made changes for some of the practical reasons we've talked about, uh, yes. they... they do want to do my story adapted to a different medium. They don't want to do a different story. And some of that is not by accident. I mean, I when the books came out and the books achieved bestsellerdom, a lot of people from Hollywood took notice and started coming around. And I got offers and inquiries and phone calls and my agents got letters about people were interested in doing it as like a feature film or something. And I had meetings with some of these people and I said no. You know, that's that's something you can always say no. <laughs> um, so in some ways, I, I, I sometimes get impatient with novelists who don't say no, who say yes. They take the dump truck full of money, and then the movie comes out and it's completely changed, and they complain or you know they denounce it or you know why didn't you just say no? Right. You know, you didn't have to you didn't have to do that, you know. You know that Hollywood will change things. You can always say no. You have the power at the time when they come to you before you sign any of the contracts. You can control it. You can ask for creative control, you can ask for script approval. Now you may not get these things, you may lose the deal. But, you know, if you're JK Rowling, you can get everything you want, you know. If you're me, you can get some of the things you want. If you're some guy who's just published his first novel and Hollywood wants it, maybe you want the dump truck full of money, then more than you want that kind of thing. But, you know, that's that's the stage to do it. Don't don't take it. I don't know. There's something that seems hypocritical about me, about taking all the money and making the deal and then trashing the, the movie that comes out right. at the end. You know, and that bothers me. 
But I, but as a fan of other people's work, I can I can trash their movies when they change. <laughs> I don't I don't uh, do I it. Can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why that's why I think you know like the uh, moving over to television and working in in that medium of television is. is when you kind of have, when you personally sort of have this this kind of game master mentality, but then going into a business where a lot of weird decisions are made that you don't have control over, and you know, that, and then it affects the creative. Like a lot of weird business decisions get made that affect the creative. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, it's it's not a coincidence that I'm back writing mostly novels again. I mean, you know, in novels I control everything. I decide exactly what goes in there. So if there's bad things in my novels, it's my fault. And if there's things you don't like, it's my fault, it's my decision, I can't blame anyone else. That's the only thing I do control. But I, li- I do like having that creative control of my stories. Um, and uh, that's something that's very hard to get in Hollywood. I mean, yeah, you can aspire to it. You can be, you know, if you're successful enough and you can be Steven Spielberg or, or in the realm of uh, motion pictures or, or you know, um, a Dick Wolf or uh, Steven Bochco in his heyday or someone in, in a realm of television where you're, you've had a lot of hits and you get a lot of credit and you can pretty well do the things you want to do. But uh, it's hard to achieve that. And for everyone who has that, there's 10,000 who uh, are constantly having to fight and make compromises and losing some of these battles. That's interesting, something you just said about, because you were talking about having creative control, and I think a lot of people want creative control, but you also were like, hey, if something's not good, it's my fault. I think there's a bigger issue of creative responsibility that you have to, that I, that I think is kind of fun. Uh, yeah. That you do get to say, like, yep, that's all me, because at least, at least you don't feel compromised, or at least you can't at least you can't be like, I shouldn't have given in on that thing, and I did, and it sucked, and it's, I'm sorry. You know, it's, it all stops at your feet, which I think fans kind of appreciate. Yeah, I mean, the sad fact is a lot of Hollywood runs off fear. Um, people, you know, there's a lot of money involved. People are very afraid to make the wrong decision. I think particularly motion pictures. That's why so many of them don't get made. Because if you greenlight a movie and, you know, you're an executive and you greenlight a movie and then it flops, you know, it could cost you your job, it could cost you your career, because you get the blame for that. So you see a lot of people running around trying to avoid taking the blame. Yeah, especially, well, especially now in the in the movie business where they're like, well, to put a movie in a theater really should be 100 to $150 million because those the, that, above that line is where movies really make a lot of money. And so there's just, you know, there's there's so much at risk. Towards that cocaine? Not yet. Oh, okay. I thought I heard about that. Which, uh, you know, I don't know, frankly, it's too much too much money. They shouldn't cost that much. But uh, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to change that by just saying these things, you know, but... Uh, it just takes one person, George. Come on. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Did you, when you started writing Song of Ice Fire, did you ever think... You know, someday I want to adapt this into something else. I mean, it was a good eleven-year chunk. I know you said people approached you, but did no, you think, I oh, just, it'll never just the opposite. I mean, I, I wrote, I started Ice and Fire coming out of ten years in television on Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast, and five years of development uh, hell trying to get a series going, and I, I was constantly being told my scripts were too big and too expensive, and I, you know, at that point, I went back and wrote Ice and Fire. I said, well. The, if I pardon my French, but fuck this. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't 
I want to write something as big as my imagination. I don't want to worry about budget. I don't worry. I'm going to have a cast of thousands. I'm going to have giant battles. I'm going to have, you know, special effects and dragons and dire wolves and 700-foot-tall walls of ice and armies of zombies. And, you know, I don't care if it's producible or not. It's producible on the page, man. It's just your imagination in the picture. So there's no limitations on the page, and this will never be adapted, but I don't care. So... So it actually. So there it is. And at that time, at the time I started it, even beyond the scale of it, it was unadaptable because it was epic fantasy. I mean, this was before the Peter Jackson movies. Nobody did epic fantasy. You couldn't do an epic fantasy movie. You know, Lucas had tried with Willow, and it had flopped, and nobody had touched it since. But, you know, that all changed with Lord of the Rings and Peter Jackson's, you know, great success. And suddenly people said, oh, well, we can do epic fantasy. Initially just in film, and hopefully Game of Thrones is broken through the same way in television and now Hollywood which is very imitative a lot of people are scrambling and optioning other epic fantasy series and developing those and uh, developing more historical series we're seeing a, a great rebirth of those with shows like the Borgias and the Tudors and uh, Da Vinci's Demons and so forth and I love historical fiction too so all this is great with me so I get tired of cop shows and lawyer shows <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> How many more cop shows can we have here? How <laughs> many is there are cops? I'd say, I say, I say partner with Dick Wolf to do like a medieval magical law and order. Like some sort of like law, law and order in some yeah. kind of a realm. That would be good, yeah. Law and order Carcassonne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it? I think it would be like, a, well, it's a medieval procedural. Like, yeah, okay. no, no law and order DBU. Actually, <laughs> to be fair, we, we have two of those now. We have Copper. We do have uh, Copper, yeah, BBC America. And Copper. we have Ripper Street. Ripper Street, both BBC uh, so, America. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I guess, I guess that's true. I guess that's totally so true. So we're, we're getting this thing. We have, don't have it, you know. There are a couple good series of uh, Roman mysteries out there um, that they could adapt. John John Maddox Roberts' SPQR series and uh, Stephen Saylor's Gordiana series uh, about uh, private detectives solving crimes in ancient Rome oh. in the Roman Republic. That would be uh, that cool. That sounds really cool. That would be awesome. Although, when you're talking about like... Uh I guess I guess I would want to see some sort of a like a deity element in that that it wouldn't just be well it's like Law and Order but they're wearing togas you know like I would, <laughs> I, I would want to see I would really want to see yeah, some that's just a sketch that is just a sketch yeah that's just a sketch that's not a full thing and I, and it, I think you're sort of at that point where I think the fans almost take a little bit of ownership over you and your work and you know I know people would. Give you shit, and some of them take complete ownership. Complete ownership. Yeah. Of them. Yeah. Not only, not only, I'm sure, like story wise, like, well, what are you talking about? How can you do that? Or, but if you know, if they think you took too much time between books, and you're like, hey, I'm a guy, and I want to write other things, sometimes that has to be okay. You know, I mean, did you ever expect that relationship with the fans to sort of become kind of a runaway, a, a runaway snowball? No, I didn't expect it because I'd never done anything like this before. I mean, until Ice and Fire, although I'd had a long career, I'd written short stories and I'd written standalone novels. So a novel like Fever Dream or The Army and Rag comes out and it's there, it's all, it's the beginning, middle, and end. It's a novel, you read it, it's over, you know? Occasionally you get a letter, someone would like a sequel, but uh, if the story lends itself to sequels, but it's not an ongoing story and no one is particularly waiting for the next one. No one is counting the days between books. So I could, you know, write a novel and then do other stuff, work in television for 10 years between one novel and the other novel, and no one 
seem to care much, but uh, with an ongoing story, I've discovered, yeah, there are some people who care a lot. Now, mind you, I get I get a hundred emails saying, "Take your time. We don't care when they come out, as long as they're good. Uh, you know, don't let anybody rush you." Very supportive, uh, nice letters. Uh, but after a hundred letters like that, I will get one email saying, "You know, fuck you. Write faster." <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> yeah, I'm your number one fan. You know, why are you not getting out the books you lazy get you? Uh, do you? Uh, why are you writing this other shit? No one cares about your other shit. I mean, people have actually said that to me. People uh, really do say shit like that. They really do say shit like that. Um, do you? Do Do you kind of get mentally prepared to write a new? book, uh, or, or does it just kind of hit you one day, like, today's the day I start, or do you have to prepare for it, or what, what's your, do you have to feel it, or do you just dive in when you have time? I, I don't know, like, either of those, I mean, I, I've been writing these books pretty much constantly, I mean, I started in 91, but I did put it aside for a few years, since I've read it in 94, so I've been almost constantly working on it, and there's almost always been a book in progress because even when I finish a book usually there are like some chapters that are finished that I've removed from that book and decided to save the next book so I already have like a hundred page start before I really begin a book so uh, that's been true uh, certainly the last last uh, few books in this series so there's never a period where uh, in, in that I remember where I'm just starting from like page one and I have nothing on the book it's like the minute one is finished another one is is going but I do have a lot of distractions and other things as well, and uh, yeah, some fans don't understand that either. You know, my, I mean, the job of being a writer, the career of being a writer, uh, involves more than just writing. I mean, maybe it shouldn't, but you know, I, I, I know there are writers who are just basically hermits, but. These days, publishers expect you to do things like our, our interview here. And, yeah. You know, it's not. This is not the only interview I'm doing at Comic Con. What? I'm doing, I'm doing a number of interviews this at Comic Con. This is bullshit. Don't, don't, don't. How dare you? <laughs> you hurt Jonah's feelings. And I. Get, it's all right, Big J. I get invitations to go to conventions, and you know, uh, yes, I enjoy going to conventions, but a lot of it is also business. It's promotion. Sure. They send me on book tours that last a month, uh, and then after I get back from that book tour and my British publishers will come over to Britain we want you to do a book tour we have the new book coming out and uh, you know it's it's like an actor who does a movie and then you have to do the talk show circuit to yeah. promote the movie um, and there's some fans who just really don't understand that that uh, that doing the interviews and doing the tours and doing the signing appearances is, is all part of the job of being a writer in 21st century America um, it's not just sitting in your garret with your, your your quill and preparing literary masterpieces here. So, how do you how do you write now? What's your do you, do you have a program or do you write in a notebook or has it changed? Well, I, I've been writing on a computer since 1982. I'm um, pretty much using the same word processing program, WordStar, uh, which I still use. I have a DOS computer that uh, I write on with WordStar 4.0. Wow. You're not worried about that at all about 
I'm no, I'm worried about. I have a Windows computer too that I surf the internet with and get my email with and do all of that stuff. That's the one I worry about. <laughs> I mean, Ty, who's sitting over there, my assistant, is my computer guy, and I'm constantly having to yell out, "Ty, the computer's doing something weird." <laughs> but it's always the Windows computer that's doing something weird. It's never the DOS computer. DOS is stable as a rock, and uh, you know nothing. Nothing really ever goes wrong with it. I've had friends working with Word or Windows who've lost like novels or something because they get some virus and it does that. Nothing happens with DOS or WordStar. And WordStar is a wonderfully unhelpful program that uh, <laughs> it does exactly what I want. At no point does a dancing paperclip come up or at no point, no point do I type something. You really something, better update your Windows. Something <laughs> different comes on the screen because, you know, it decides that. If I type a, a, a lowercase letter, I get a lowercase letter where Windows is always like making it uppercase. Yeah. If I wanted uppercase, I would have typed it uppercase. <laughs> I wanted lowercase yeah. and uh, all of that stuff. So. Good morning. Hi. You're lucky. Doss is a girlfriend. No one will try to steal. You're all right. My worst star was, I remember coming on uh, eight floppy disks, eight, three and a half, three, three and a quarter floppies. Wow. I remember a worst star very well. Yeah, Word Star is great. Stuff. It's 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 uh, good, you know. You save stuff to a floppy drive? I have mirrored hard drives, so uh-huh. uh, it, everything is automatically saved to the second hard drive. But I also do have floppy disks. Yeah. Uh, well, they're not floppy anymore. They're, right. the, they're the hard little the little ones. Yeah. That I uh, <laughs> that I save it to. So. Can you uh, can you teach writing? Do you think? I know you've taught in the past. Can you teach writing, or can you? get someone to get to a place where they can access that. You can't teach talent, um, but you can teach craft. Oh, good. You can teach craft and professionalism and the other, the other aspects of having a, a career than just talent. So when I go to Clarion, you know, you, you can almost tell who's the most talented people, and they, they may not necessarily going to be the ones that... I mean, those, those classes are pre-selected, mind you. They get, yeah. thank you, hundreds of applicants, and they take 20. Um, so everybody in there is, is talented to some degree, but uh, some of them are amazingly talented. But they're not necessarily the ones who are going to have the best careers. But you also do need the craft and discipline, and uh, you have to consult yourself in a fairly professional manner, and uh, and you have to keep at it. That's one of the things I, I, I teach. You know, this is writing is not a profession for anyone who needs security. Right. It's not a job where you enter it at the entry level and you work and then you advance to middle management and you get raises and ultimately you become a vice president or a partner in a firm and you know move toward that gold watch and oh, etc. Imagine the security guys. <laughs> be so secure. Be sad to do it that way. way. <laughs> etc. You know, I mean, I've had a couple points of great success, and I've had points of uh, tremendous failure where I thought my career was over. But uh, and some people were hit those points where their career is over, and they let their career be over. They they stop. They're too discouraged. They can't sell a book anymore. You got to keep writing. You got to keep it. You know, because it'll change again. You know, but you got to keep plugging away and don't let yourself give up. So. It's the people who really want to do it. I, I don't know. I don't think you. Sometimes I don't think you choose writing. I think it. It's something you have to do. Yeah, I, I tell people that with stand where they go, well, how do I start this? And I go, well, if you care about it, you'll just do it. And if it means something to you, you'll do it. And when you feel like you're failing, 
you'll do it anyway, and if you keep doing it, you're automatically ahead of like 90% of the people yeah. who do it. That there's just that, if you just did that, you, you might have a shot because most people will, will give up along the way. Yeah. yeah. I took some questions from Reddit. Uh, no, they're good questions. I didn't. I didn't pick any. ASL. That's the first question. Well, I started a. I, just, I started a subreddit last night because I couldn't figure out like where to get some question submissions yeah. from. Like, well, do I put it in the Game of Thrones thread? Do I put it in a writing thread or a subreddit? Uh, and so I created uh, uh, AMA. What did I create? Uh, AMA TASE. Ask me some. Ask me anything to ask someone else. Um, <laughs> So it was a long way to go. That's good. But it works. I got a bunch of questions. Um, this is from Batman Burry. <laughs> it's Batman and then B-U-R-Y. It looks like Batman Burry. Like it's a I, don't, I don't know that Batman. <laughs> <laughs> He's the British Victorian Batman. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Batman Burry. Um... In a previous interview, you mentioned your belief that fantasy and science fiction are actually two sides of the same coin. Could you elaborate that idea for a moment and talk a little bit about some sci-fi author books slash books that influence you over your career? Yeah, I, I think science fiction and fantasy, and also horror to one of some extent, are, are all they're all subsets of uh, what used to be called romantic fiction, as opposed to realistic fiction. These are the two main branches of fiction, and... Uh, um, well, the only differences between them is is the furniture, uh, <laughs> you know, spaceships and aliens, castles and knights, uh, or dragons or whatever, or gothic haunted houses and vampires, uh, you know, the the imaginative elements. But uh, um, is that a polarizing point with some people who are on either side? Like, no, we're sci-fi, we're not fantasy, and vice versa. Or do you think everyone sort of feels that way? Yeah. No, uh, it is a polarizing issue, almost entirely from a science fiction side. <laughs> uh, there, there is a subset of science fiction authors who regard science fiction as, you know, the one true literature here, and fantasy is is drivel because fantasy, you know, science fiction could happen and fantasy could not happen. You know, fantasy is made up, silly stuff, uh, and and science fiction is real and relevant. Uh, you know. Uh, a lot of them can quote the uh, the famous uh, um, Vonnegut speech from uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, where the the Kilgore Trout or something breaks into the Milford Science Fiction Writers Conference and gives the famous speech about you guys are the only ones writing about the future. You are the only ones writing about what the, what how our society is changing and what machines are doing to men and uh, all of this stuff. And that's that speech, uh, you know. Oddly enough, coming from, written by a writer who himself did everything he could to distance himself from science fiction uh, and not to have that label put on his books, but that affirmation of the value of science fiction as uh, this predictive literature that's dealing with real social problems in the real world has become a mantra to some science fiction writers. But the truth is, I don't like that kind of science fiction. I don't. I don't tend to read. I mean, I've read some. Certainly, I've read all the classics of the genre. Something like uh, John Brunner's *The Sheep Look Up* and *Stand on Zanzibar in Its Day*, which were very much about, you know, the social problems and things that were going on. But my favorite science fiction is like Jack Vance. It's it's you know a thousand years in the future on some weird planet with some crazy society and interesting aliens. Uh, you know, all the stuff. Uh, 
that tie in Daniel Abraham were writing as James S. A. Corey about this solar system of the future and Mars and Earth are at war and there's strange alien artifacts being found. And that stuff is not very different to the science fiction that I wrote back when I was writing my Thousand World stories from fantasy instead of, you know, you have a, a spaceship instead of a dragon and, and all that, but uh, you have aliens instead of elves, but... You know, there are no aliens, there are no elves. Uh, it's all romantic constructs, it's all imaginative fiction, as opposed to the realistic fiction where people are writing about the problems of a suburbanite, you know, <laughs> who's been passed over for a vice presidency and is having an affair with the next door neighbor. Is he going to get a gold watch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he went for the security. Yeah. He deserves the gold watch. Um, this is from Seraphis, who wants to know once Song of Ice and Fire is finished, and that weight is lifted off your shoulders. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most? A new writing project, branching out into other media, or perhaps some well-deserved time uh, off from writing? You know, I, when I take time off for writing, it's like a couple weeks. I can't imagine ever retiring, you know, uh, even as long as my mind is still working. I, I've always made up stories. All I think I'll always make up stories. I have dozens of other stories unconnected with Ice and Fire that I want to tell. Um, which ones will I tell by the time Ice and Fire is finished? I have no idea. Whichever one I really want to tell at that date, and that's going to be, you know, five, seven, ten years in the future, and I'll be a different person by then. I'll probably have a hundred ideas between now and then that I haven't even thought of now, so who knows. Yeah. But I will write something else. I will always continue, I think, to, uh, to keep writing. Um, it may be stuff that uh, the Ice and Fire fans won't like because it won't be Ice and Fire. It may be even like short stories. I wrote, uh, I began my career by writing a lot of short stories. I love the short story form. I don't write it much anymore. Uh, it doesn't pay very much. Um, but it's still a great form. And, and uh, you know, by the time I finish Ice and Fire, which given the success of it, has, has left me pretty well off financially. So I don't think I'm going to have to worry about, oh my god, I took a month and I'm only going to get $1,000 for it. Um, I, I'll be able to afford to do that and still write. So I might write a bunch of short stories, but I don't know. I don't know. Is it harder for Is the same level of difficulty short story versus like a long, you know, like, like a novel in the sense that, you know, the short story is really kind of like a sketch. You kind of, you have to convey the idea and kind of get in and get out. Is that more challenging in some aspects or is it easier? They're both hard in different ways. I mean, they're different skill sets. But, you know, you can write a short story in a, in a white-hot heat of uh, falling in love with the idea and the characters, and then it's over, you know, you spend a couple weeks on it. I mean, I've written short stories in as, in as little as a week. Um, novels obviously take commitments of at least a year. It's always taken me at least a year to write a novel, and with Ice and Fire, you know, three years, four years, five years. So it's a long thing. That's weird because you you would change. You personally would change in the time a period of time that you're writing a, something. Yes. So do you do you get two or three years in, like three hundred pages in, and then you're like, I hate this now, or like you're different, or you don't believe some of the things you wrote anymore? But that is an issue. I mean. Years ago, uh, I was in, uh, when I lived in Chicago, I was in a writing group with Gene Wolfe, brilliant, brilliant writer. And Gene, uh, in our writers group, we were seeing the early drafts of uh, what began as a novella and ultimately became Gene's famous four-book trilogy, uh, The Shadow of the Torturer, and its uh, sequels, uh, 
Shadow Twitter, Chlor Conciliator, you know, Citadel, the Autark, etc. Um, Gene was a full-time magazine editor for Plant Engineering Magazine. Uh, that's what how he supported himself and his family. Um, he wrote weekends, he wrote nights, but the crucial part was he didn't he didn't have to pay his bills with his money from writing. So he wrote that entire series before anyone saw any of it. He wrote all four books. Oh wow! Um, in first draft, and then when he finished them, by the time he finished book four. He knew exactly where it was going, and he could go back and revise book one with book four already in mind and, you know, put in some foreshadowing to things that would happen in book three that he hadn't been thinking of when he wrote book one, take out some things that turned out to be dead ends that never led to anywhere or whatever, and, and produce that. And that's the ideal way to write a long series, is to write the entire thing and then submit it only when it's done. But, of course... I would have starved to death if I'd done that thing because my writing is my only source of income. And, and you know, around if if since I started this in '91 and I'm still working on it all these years later, I would have had no income for you know 25 years here. So uh, that would have been difficult for me. Sure. Um, but artistically, that's the ideal way to go about it. Is there, are there things that you look back with the original Game of Thrones and you're like, shit, I oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, there are. <laughs> were you able to were you able to influence maybe a change in that when it came to the series like it's like you know what I kind of, there's a thing that I would have liked to do do you mind doing that for the series well I've thrown a few things like that at David and Dan from time to time but I hesitate to mess with it too much because you know it is what it is I published the books it's too late to say I know some writers go back and they revise their earlier books you know, Arthur C. Clarke published his first novel yeah. Against the Fall of Night, and then he went back later and rewrote it as The City and the Stars. Uh, both interesting books. It's interesting to look at them and see the differences. I actually prefer the earlier book, however. Yeah. I like Against the Fall of Night better than The City and the Stars. So um, sometimes your first instinct is your right instinct. You hear that, George Lucas? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he loves to listen to the podcast. Sure, yeah, yeah. He's really going to take that to heart. <laughs> yeah. No, he didn't hear it. No matter how many times people. George, <laughs> <try>. George. <laughs> Joshua Quayle wants to know. Uh, essentially, his question is: You've become so accustomed to character death, which can be hard for your fan. You're a fan, like to watch. You know, like it's basically someone that they get to know that then all of a sudden dies, and so emotionally, this guy's question sort of revolves around how. He has he has emotional difficulty now being attached to characters because he knows they might die. So his has shifted to the sources of power behind the players. And was that by design or incidental, or what's your overall take on on killing a character? Well, my overall take is more people should do it. I guess uh, uh, I mean that that's weird that you can't get attached to the characters because you know you must die. I mean, how, does he carry that through into real life and not get attached to the people around him because they might die? Probably. They will die. All of them will die. I hate to tell you guys this, but all of you are going to die. Comic Con 2013. Let's jump the window, guys, together. We are the champions, my friends. That is that is true. You know, somewhere right now at uh, Comic Con 2013, every one of those people, those under 50,000 people, is going to die. There will come a time when nobody living will remember Comic-Con 2013. That's not possible, the times we're having. Um, do you- so we still form, you know, that's part of the wonder of the human race is uh, uh, 
life and death and we form these attachments and we lose people and we find new people and and you know we live these lives in I don't know defiance of the darkness that looms over us all and winter is coming for every one of us <laughs> you should write all that down you should write all that down that was good you should write that shit down <laughs> Do you get excited? Did but the, I, I, I. There must be some kind of a weird thrill in knowing that you've hooked someone into a character and been like, "Oh, just you wait." <laughs> Actually, it's hard for me to kill the characters. I, I mourn them almost as I do real people. But uh, even some of the villains, sometimes, uh, as as nasty as they may be, and I, pref- they perform an important function and uh, when you lose one it's uh, it's hard to replace them sometimes but uh, you know I'm a reader before I'm a writer and uh, they say you write the stories that you want to read and I think there's an element of truth to that and as a reader and as someone who goes to uh, a lot of movies and television shows read comic books I, I like things to be unpredictable I, I hate these things where you know you read the first chapter you know exactly where the book is going to go it's completely predictable and I want the suspense of knowing that my characters are risking things and so forth so my final question is about uh, how do you get how do you push past the wall you know when you sit down and you know wall of ice <laughs> when you sit down and you know, like, I, ha- I need to write today, I have to get through today, but your brain is just sort of on lockdown, do you step away or do you, are you able to mash through it? And how do you do that? Uh, you know, some days I'm able to mash through it, some days I'm not. Um, I, that's one of the things. I mean, I, I work pretty much every day. The only time that I take off whole days are when I'm traveling, and that's a different sort of work, like I'm doing here. Um, or, you know, during NFL season when I'm watching my football games on Sunday, I take all Sunday off. Um, but other than that, I'm working pretty much seven days a week, but I'm not always necessarily writing. I, some days I do hit the wall and I'll answer email. I mean, I'm presently about 3,000 emails behind, and, you know, I may come a day where I you know, the writing is just not coming very well, so, you know, okay, I'll answer 100 emails today. And <laughs> Got now, a lot of emails from George today. Oh, he must not be writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's a good I word hire count? minions like Ty and his associates here who are trying to take some of the emails and some of the associated yeah. things off my plate, but uh, things keep piling up on my plate. What's a good word count for you in a day where you feel like, oh, I got a good, or is it I hit a good story point, or is there like a like a metric of a word count that you like to hit? If I'm I'm perfectly happy if I'm doing like four or five pages a day, that's a great day for me. I've had a day, uh, you know, occasional days where I've written twenty pages. That's probably the record I've ever had in my entire life, but it's only happened like twice. Yeah, um, and it tends to happen. Toward the end of a book, you know, like on something like Fever Dream, Armageddon, and Rag, where the end was in sight. I was on the last chapters, and suddenly I saw I'm going downhill, and I'm, I, it's all mm-hmm. falling into place, and I'm building. I haven't reached that stage on Ice and Fire yet here. There's <laughs> yeah. still so much more to go. So, uh, you know. so Skin Trade is out. It's coming out. Is it out? Is Skin Trade out yet? Or is the it comic? To, yeah. It should have debuted here. Yeah, it, it debuted here at Comic Con. Debuted here to well, it debuted nationally yesterday. So uh, presumably, they're selling it in the Avatar booth right now. And then Meat House Man is October, right? Yes. 
Meathouse Man is October, and then uh, GeorgeRRMartin.com. I notice you've never tweeted. Uh, you do have a Twitter account with a bunch of followers, but there are zero tweets on it. I, I don't uh, tweet. Don't uh, tweet. I'm, I'm not on Twitter. They've set up, my minions have set up things. I guess I have, what do I have? Do I have a Twitter account? Or is that yeah, some fake Leo, account? Julio set one up for you that... Okay. You have a shit ton of followers, but you're not following anyone. There's no tweets. They're just waiting. <laughs> Please, just one tweet. You just tweet the whole novel. Just one tweet, 140 characters at a time. And then uh, there's a there's essentially a non-writing, you're not a blog, which is your live journal, which right. is more about like sportsy and, and just anything that's not the sci-fi fantasy. Well, I, I talk about writing there and uh, all of that stuff, but, uh, you know... I talk about anything there, you know, but football during football season and uh, uh, trips I'm taking or whatever, um, just things that concern me. I did one on old movie theaters recently because I bought a movie theater, which I'm in the process of in New Mexico, restoring. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to reopen it in August. So who's, nice. your, uh, who's, your, cool. who's your team football-wise? Giants and the Jets. Uh, it's, it's good to have two. <laughs> the Jets, of course, are the cross I have to bear. But uh, <laughs> hey, I'm a Patriots fan, so I don't care for either of your teams. Oh, okay. <laughs> fight, fight, fight! Let's do it outside. Come on, Martin. No offense, Matt, but he's got a way cooler. Well, way you know that uh, you you crush you crush the Jets twice a year, and yeah. usually humiliate us, and and, and then uh, the like the Big Brother, the Giants come and spank you in the school. <laughs> Actual giants. Um, <laughs> sir, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you yeah. so much for letting us come to your hotel room. Right? My pleasure. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Awesome. Thank, thank, so thank you. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.